Open your Bible to Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is where we're going to be this morning. I think it's pretty common amongst all of us that when you enjoy something, you want others to enjoy it as well. If you have a favorite restaurant, you tell others, you have to go there, and if you go there, you have to try whatever it is on the menu that's your favorite. The worst thing that could possibly happen is that you experience a kind of joy and there's no one around to share it with, isn't it? I was watching the other day, I frequently like to watch these uh, clips of fans that catch foul balls on as they appear on Twitter and on the, the webosphere in various places. I saw one the other day where a dad is holding his newborn baby and feeding him with a bottle in his hand. And a foul ball has hit his way, and he stands up over his wife and his newborn son and bare hands the ball in midair, protecting both his son and his child, and the bottle never broke its seal with his child. And what's the first thing that dad did? He turned around to everybody else's stands and says, Did y'all see that? <laughs> did you see what I just did? <laughs> Tell me that wasn't in a vacuum. Of course, when you experience a kind of joy, you want others to experience it as well. In our passage this morning, in Psalm 34, David has experienced joy. And he wants the rest of the nation of Israel, all of God's people, to experience it with him. Look at Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we hear your word in this psalm through David, and we pray for its effectiveness in our hearts, that as we seek to understand what it means word by word, as we seek to understand line by line, that you would help to apply that to our heart, penetrate the rough exterior that is already there, the calluses that are built up, the sin that dwells deep within. Penetrate our hearts. Break down those walls that we want to put up against your word. And I pray, Father, that you would speak directly to us, each and every one of us, myself included. Preach a better sermon than I could ever dream of. Apply it to each of our hearts that we may change, may, may, may be changed, having encountered you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, unlike most psalms that we read, they most of the time give just the author. Perhaps they give the author and the tune sometimes. But this psalm tells us the occasion in David's life that this psalm was written, that it came out of. Psalm 34 is written soon after the events of 1 Samuel 21, 10 and following, all the way to the end of the chapter. And you may remember that by the end of chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, it's getting close to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, and it's moving toward its conclusion, which is some 30 chapters long. The king at the time was Saul, and although he was initially warm to David, he liked David, thought of David as a son, he has now, by this point in the book of 1 Samuel, come to hate him dearly and even seeking on many occasions to try to kill him. David is on the run. Now remember also that by this point in the book of 1 Samuel, David has already been declared king. Samuel, the prophet, has already anointed him the heir apparent to, to Saul. But since Saul was still alive, David has yet to actually assume the throne. So he's the heir apparent, he's anointed, but he hasn't assumed the throne yet. Worst of all, Saul knows that David is the heir apparent and that Samuel has anointed him. And so Saul is chasing after him, trying to kill him. And so David spends most of his days as the heir apparent on the run from the current king of the Jews, Saul. Now on this occasion, at the end, toward the end of chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, David finds himself taking shelter in the kingdom of the Philistine city of Gath. It's a Philistine city, and David goes to seek shelter there. And he seeks shelter under the king by the name of Achish, who in this psalm is called Abimelech. Now, that presents some challenges, but Abimelech really seems to be just a generic title for the Philistine kings. Many of them are referred to this way. Many people are referred to as Abimelech, Abimelech just means my father was king. So, that's a good name for a king. My father was king, right? I was, I'm king, and guess who else was king? My father was king. So it comes to be just a generic title, much like the word Pharaoh is a title for the king of, of Egypt. So Abimelech, or his proper name, Achish, is who David seeks shelter under. He's a Philistine king in the city of Gath. Now, the problem that David runs into when he comes into this city, is that he's built a little bit of a reputation as a warrior, as a soldier. He was appointed as the, the, the chief of, the, of Saul's army, and, and as such, he has killed quite a few Philistines. If you're seeking shelter in a Philistine city, having killed quite a few Philistines, that can be a bit of a dangerous proposition. However, and they have a chant about it. There's a chant that the people have about David. 
Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Meaning that David is mightier than Saul. Now, the benefit to David is that though people know him by name and know him by reputation, there's no Facebook or paparazzi. So many people may know his name, many other people may know his reputation, but few people have actually seen him. So they don't know that they can actually recognize him until he gets to the city of Gath, in which case his luck runs out. He walks into the city, and all of the people there, especially the servants of Abimelech, actually recognize David. They recognize him by his face, or maybe they just recognize him by a kind of a strange person coming into the city. But they tell Abimelech, who they're servants of, wait a minute, isn't this guy that's just come in here to seek shelter in our city, isn't this David, the one who, they, who is anointed king over the land, the one who they say about him, he has killed, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands? And when, when we say ten thousands, we mean ten thousands of Philistines? Isn't this the same David? So David panics, as one would. He's fearing what Abimelech is actually going to do to him by the word of his servants. And so what he did was he sought to disguise himself or disfigure himself as a crazy man. He spit on his own chin, so he's got slobber coming from his mouth, dishevels his hair, changes his appearance, and he acts like an insane man in front of Abimelech, hoping that by just hope against hope, that by sheer chance, Abimelech looks at him and goes, oh, it's just a crazy guy, which is exactly what happens. The servants bring David before Abimelech. David acts crazy. He scratches the doors, and we see claw marks on his shelter, and Abimelech looks at his servants and he's like, do I need another madman around here? Why have you brought me a madman? This is a crazy guy. It's not the future king of Israel. What sane person would act like that? And dismisses him out of his court. So David's psalm here in 34 is a response to this event, to what has just happened. And in it, he's explaining how he views the situation that's just transpired. That he acted crazy, and Abimelech bought it and dismissed him out of his court. He sees it as the Lord having spared him from certain death. This psalm is, first of all, a call to public worship. He's appealing, generally, to everyone in the crowd, to those who are like him, who have either experienced or would like to experience the saving hand of the Lord, to join Him in praise. So it's a call to public worship, first of all. But second, this psalm is also an acrostic poem. You wouldn't know that just by looking at it in your text, in your English text. And, but for the most part, each verse in this psalm begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Just like a, a kid might spell the word mommy down the left side of the page on Mother's Day, and might come up with various superlatives for mommy, that O is always tricky, right? That O is really tricky. But he might, you know, do that and give it to his mom for Mother's Day. This is David's acrostic poem to the Lord going straight down the Hebrew alphabet. Now, the benefit to that is that it becomes easy for Hebrew children and Hebrew adults even, as they sing it, to remember it. Well, the next line begins with Aleph, and the next line begins with Beit. And the next line begins with Gimel, and that's all I remember. Um, I'm just kidding. 
but it's an easy way of remembering and encouraging the people as they think about the God that they serve to recite this in their, in their singing. So this, this psalm comes to us in two main stanzas. we get the first seven verses that David gives us, which is his experience. And he's going to recount his experience. And then the last verses, 8 to 22, is where he advises us on what to do based on his experience. If you're like me, and if you've experienced this like I have, then here's what we should do in 8 to 22. So first, let's look at the experience that David has. Reading the account of 1 Samuel alone, you would probably be tempted to walk away with that because you don't really get insight into what David's thinking about the whole matter. And so you might walk away from that reading of 1 Samuel 21, 10 and following and go, hey, that David is a pretty savvy guy. He's got some good political acumen. He is a quick thinker. He's fast on his feet. And boy, did he come up with a really good decision that just navigated him around a very tough terrain. But that isn't what David tells us at the beginning of the psalm. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says that before acting crazy, he says, He sought the Lord, and the Lord answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David even says that he was scared. He calls himself a poor man in verse 6 who was in trouble. So when he opens this psalm in verse 1, with, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes boast in the Lord. David's not attributing any of this to his own political acumen, or his own savviness, or man was I a quick thinker, or was that a great plan? He's saying instead, that was the Lord that did that. In fact, he's confessing the exact opposite. Based on what has just occurred, he's realized his own inability to save himself. There's no way that plan should have worked. And somehow it did. The Lord gave me favor. This is not an example of political acumen. This is an example of the Lord working in and through this situation. Remember, David is anointed to be king by Samuel. So what that means is that God has chosen him to be the next king. Now, David has every reason because of that anointing alone to believe that he's going to live. It turns out to be king, it's necessary that you outlive the previous one, right? Isn't it? Amen? Okay. This means yes, this means no. You got to outlive the previous one. So if he's been anointed king, he has every reason to believe that God is going to preserve his life. Yet, since the day he was anointed, and even before, he's been running for his life from Saul, who is the current king. So then the question remains for David, can he really trust that the Lord will protect him? Is the Lord powerful enough to save him in the midst of all of the attacks from the king? Well, the fact that he isn't a dead man and that Abimelech actually bought the act and dismissed him is evidence of the Lord's deliverance in the situation. So having been delivered from, his, from this situation by the hand of the Lord, he makes his appeal to everyone else. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. So it's an appeal 
to anyone who can sympathize, anyone who is in earshot, who can sympathize with where he is. Have you ever been delivered from despair by the hand of the Lord? Have you ever had the Lord answer a prayer of yours? Then join me in praising him. Anyone who has been humbled, anyone who realizes their own inability to save themselves, anyone who is anyone who can sympathize with where I'm at, join with me in praising the Lord. This has always been true of those of the household of faith. Whether we're in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, it's transferable. It, it is the same. Our praise is intended to be shared with others. Think about it. How can you be over the moon satisfied with the fact that God has saved you through the blood of Christ and not desire to share that with anyone else? To be a Christian who is not a gospel-sharing Christian is an oxymoron. What does that mean? How can you be enthralled with Christ and with the salvation that He has afforded you by His sacrifice on the cross and not desire to share that with anyone else? That doesn't make any sense. How can you not desire to share that with your brothers and sisters in Christ? That doesn't make any sense either. One aspect of what we're doing here on Sunday by Sunday in worship is sharing that mutual faith, is rejoicing. Yet each Sunday, some walk in who are over the moon excited about their salvation that they have in Christ. The songs that they sing bring tears to their eyes. They raise their hands. They sing shouts of praise. They, they can understand every word that's up there on the screen because, man, I have experienced exactly that. The scriptures that are read resonate deep within them. The same with the prayers. They echo deep within their soul. And meanwhile, there are others who are just as much a part of God's family, but who have tons of baggage that they're bringing in on any given Sunday. They've been through trials of various kinds. It's hard for them to even be here on a Sunday. They have doubting, maybe even doubting the very existence of God. Or they may just be sad or depressed or mourning. And they're supposed to hear the praise coming from those who are joyful, reminding them of exactly what David says here. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. It's a much needed reminder for them as they hear those praises coming out of the mouths of their brothers and sisters that it won't always be this way. There is reason to celebrate. There is reason to magnify the name of the Lord. There is reason to exalt His name together. Magnify the Lord with me. But that's not frequently what we choose to do, especially in the modern church. I don't know what it was like before our era, but I know that in the modern church, particularly when it comes to mourning, that's not frequently how we approach it. We often choose to stay at home in the midst of 
sadness, to be alone. I've seen everything from divorce to death to depression drive people away from the church body. I can't be around them because I just don't want to be a blubbering mess there on the pew. And I know that if I'm there, I just can't hold it together. And I I don't think anyone really needs to see me cry. Now believe me, I get the sentiment. I understand it. I have personally felt it before. I know exact, and I would say even before I was a pastor, I gave into that. I have to be here now, right? There's no choice. But before then, I gave into that sentiment sometimes. But hear me, the logic of the Bible and the logic, the logic that it takes to get to that position is contrary to the logic that the Scriptures are laying out for us. It's very opposite of what the Scriptures are calling you to. When you push away from the church because of mourning or depression or a host of other things that you might be going through, when everyone else around you is shouting praise to the Lord and you can't seem to do that but through gritted teeth because it's very hard to believe at this moment, and instead you choose to push yourself away from the church, all you do is cut yourself off from the very means at which the Lord has provided to bring restoration to your life. To hear the praises of everyone else. The praises of your brothers and sisters, in other words, is blood rushing to the wound. It's putting an arm around you and saying, magnify the Lord with me. It's giving you stilts, giving you a crutch to lean on when you can't seem to do it yourself. Understand that in this text, David is the only one that's happy. David is the one writing this. The thing, it happened to him. It didn't really happen to anybody else. He's the one that's excited about it. And he's writing this to a body who aren't currently there. And he's encouraging them to be as happy as he is. He's reminding the whole congregation, the Lord wants you to experience his joy and it can only be found in him. Remember that congregation. And then there's a reminder there in verse 7 at the end. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, the angel of the Lord is different than an angel of the Lord. Those are two different qualities of of things we're looking at there. Not Not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. In fact, throughout the Old Testament... The angel of the Lord is the commander of the Lord's armies in Joshua 5.14. He's revered, honored, and worshipped. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush and tells him to take off his shoes for the ground he's standing on is holy ground. He says the same thing to Joshua. The angel of the Lord promises to multiply the offspring of Hagar in Genesis 16. Does that sound familiar? Multiply your offspring. I will multiply your offspring. The angel of the Lord promises that to Hagar. The angel of the Lord is regularly used throughout the Old Testament as a term for God himself coming down to earth to interface with humanity. The angel of the Lord here in this psalm, for all those who fear him, 
there is a promise that the angel of the Lord will also be their deliverer. This angel of the Lord sounds familiar, doesn't he? Sounds like someone we should know. More on him in just a minute. First, David advises us in the following verses. He gives us advice. What should we do then, David? If we're there, we're ready, we understand, we need to praise the Lord. What are we to do? David begins advising them, come magnify the Lord with me. And how to respond appropriately to that call. Now, he's just said that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, who fear the Lord. And now his objective is to explain how it is that we come together in the fear of the Lord. But first he begins with some really spectacular promises. Look at what he says in verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And he goes on to essentially promise them in verse 12, if you want to live a good long life, then this is how you get it. So the promises are tremendous in this passage. Fear the Lord and you won't have any lack. The Lord will withhold no good thing and you'll have a long life. And then if you look in verse 15, the Lord's eyes and ears will always be on you. In verse 17, when you cry for help, he will hear you and deliver you from all your troubles. In verse 18, when you're brokenhearted, he will be near you. He will save you when you're crushed in spirit. Your bones will not be broken. Lots of promises for those who fear the Lord. And so I think all of us are looking at those promises going, I'd like some of those. I'd like all of those, in fact. So come on, David, spill it. How do we get those promises? Well, then he tells you in verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Verse 13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Do you hear that? There's the promise. Promise for all of these blessings. Here's what you have to do to get there. All you have to do to truly fear the Lord is not speak any evil thing, never lie, always turn away from evil, do good, always seek peace. You like that? Encouraging? It's really important that as we read this, we have the gospel in our mind as we read it. Because the, having the gospel in your mind tells you, wait a minute, that sounds like the law. Keep your tongue from evil, from ever speaking deceit, no lies. Turn away from evil, assuming means all evil. Do good continually. Seek peace and pursue it. Is that all? Can't do it. Having the gospel in your mind, when you see the qualifications for what it takes to be blessed in this way, you look at the qualifications and go, well, I'm out. In fact, who could be in? Oh, well, is that it? I mean, come on. Why not throw a few more commandments on top of it? So if you're reading, on the contrary, if you're reading the book of Psalms like an instruction manual, like so many people call it, 
then you're going to run aground pretty quickly. Because David has started the, the, the foundation for how one fears the Lord and guarantees him length of days and deliverance and all these promises. And this is where the prosperity gospel really latches on to the Old Testament, interprets it terribly, and then gives it to you in a New Testament audience and says, there, go ahead, this is how you're blessed. It takes so many people captive. It's taking these promises here and say, see there, God's going to deliver you. You just name it and claim it. He'll always prosper you. You just have to believe. Well, you're not being prospered? Well, then apparently there's something wrong with you. You're speaking deceit. There's lies in your mouth. What's wrong there? The problem with this is that there's a standard that has to be met that David defines what fearing the Lord is. And every true Christian who's reading this with the gospel lenses on, with the gospel in their mind, should be able to plainly see that you don't meet it. You don't meet those qualifications. That's not hope for you. That's despair. I can't do that. So if I want to be blessed, you mean, then, then I've got to do that. Well, I can't. Isn't this what Paul's point is in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 12? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is right before, by the way, he says in 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you're reading Psalms like an instruction manual, you're saying, good, I've got my commands, I've got my list of rules. No. You're in a hopeless state. You can't be blessed then. And ironically here, Paul is actually quoting David from the Psalms. He's quoting both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. So if you come to church this morning, you think, okay, I just need to get the rules. Give me the list of things that I need to do in order for God to hear my prayers, in order for God to bless me, in order for God to, to, to really give me all these blessings that we're seeing here. You're already approaching this passage from the wrong angle. But understand this, with the gospel in mind, it doesn't mean that this psalm then has nothing to say to us. That could be the other reaction, right? You, you begin with the gospel in mind, you read it, and you go, well, I'm out. So I guess I just shouldn't read Psalm 34. I should just keep going. In fact, what we'll see and what we'll come to understand is when we see this psalm in light of the gospel, only then can all of the meaning in the text actually be applied to us. So let's look really closely at verses 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now on the surface, don't spoil it for me, James. <laughs> Some people already know where I'm going. That's okay, that's good. On the surface, this sounds like such a terrific promise. 
So terrific, in fact, that it can hardly be believed. All of his afflictions, he'll deliver them out of them all, he says. Not one bone ever broken. Not one. That's, that's so good. That promise is so good that it's hard to believe that it could even be true. But here's where the New Testament really helps us out. They're far better readers of the Old Testament than we'll ever be. All right? So the New Testament authors come in, and they actually explain this, and they, they help us to understand it's not so much a promise as it is a prophecy. Now, the two are very close, sure, but it's a prophecy. We've, what we find is that this verse, verse 20, none of his bones will be broken, is cited in John 19, 31 to 36. This is the scene that takes place just after the crucifixion of Jesus. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. That's the, all the people on the cross, including Jesus. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. It's really important that we grasp this concept, especially when we're reading the Old Testament and especially when we're reading Psalms. When the New Testament authors come to understand who Jesus is, they then understand Him to be the truly righteous one that David is talking about here in Psalm 34. Now, to be sure, David is celebrating a win that he has personally had. And he's using this as an example. Hey, come magnify the Lord with me. This has happened to me, and it's awesome. God's delivered him from a potential down, uh, downfall. And, and, and David, to be sure, is a law-keeping Jew. He's the king of the, Israel, of the Israelites, king of the Jews. And he fears and he worships the one true God, Yahweh. And there's no way anything that David is saying could ever be applied to one of the pagan Philistines. They can't expect God's goodness to be demonstrated to them the way that God would demonstrate His goodness to His own people, Israel. This is exclusively to God's people. However, David ultimately is going to fail. Spectacularly, by the way. He's going to flame out. All the people David is talking to in this psalm are ultimately going to fail. Here's what you've got to do to receive the Lord's blessing. You've got to do these things. We'll do it. Nope. They're all going to fail one by one. All of their kids, guess what? Ultimately fail. All of their kids' kids, same result. Everyone within earshot of this psalm, as the congregation sings it, will ultimately fail to properly fear the Lord by turning away from evil and pursuing good. 
all except one. David experiences a minor victory here. People experience victories here and there throughout the Old Testament, but ultimately they fail, all except one. The New Testament authors clue us in as to who that one is, and it's Jesus Christ. In this statement by John, he's looking back and not merely saying that verse 20 of Psalm 34 is fulfilled, but that Jesus is the righteous man that's being talked about in Psalm 34. And how do you know? Well, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute. What happened to the whole, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles? Wasn't that promised? Didn't Jesus die on a cross? Wasn't he crying out for help? Did the Lord hear him and deliver him from all his troubles? First, you have to understand, Jesus, the righteous one, died on that cross not for his own sins but for yours. That's the reason he was left on the cross. If it was merely a question of his righteousness, he would have been taken down immediately. It wasn't. It was a question of your sin. That's what kept him there. He suffered contrary to what he deserved. He was righteous, and yet he suffered your penalty. You and I don't deserve for the Lord to hear our cry or to be delivered or to have any of these promises in Psalm 34 come to us because we don't meet the righteous standard that David put out to begin with. Only Jesus does. And John, having put this together, this whole gospel together, and he's been telling us from the very beginning that this eternal Son of God was perfect from the beginning, now tells us about his dying in a tragic way. So we're inclined to think, well, maybe Jesus wasn't righteous after all. He died, didn't he? To which John says, it didn't break his legs. Just like it says in Psalm 34, they didn't break his legs, proving that he, in fact, was the righteous man that this psalm is talking about. But ultimate proof, if you don't believe that, ultimate proof came three days later when he got up from the grave and he was raised by God from the dead. Did the Lord deliver Jesus Christ from all his trouble? Yes! Ultimately, yes! He raised him from the dead. How much more delivered from your troubles can you get than raised from the dead? He can't even be troubled by death anymore. You can't be more delivered from your troubles than that. But here's where it goes from good news to great news. Especially for all those who put their trust in Christ. Exclusively for those who put their trust in Christ. Because Jesus suffered the punishment for our sins, God has pardoned us of all unrighteousness. There it is. Poof. Jesus says, it is finished. Pardon. Of all unrighteousness. He's already suffered for our sins. We don't have to suffer for the sins because He's already suffered for them. So now, when we look at verse 22, we can see this is squarely ours in Christ alone. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Amen? Amen. 
But further, because we are Christ's body, because we're members of him, what has he also done? He's also given us a new nature. He's given us of his nature. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us. That means God has written his law on our hearts. He's replaced a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh to say what the prophets have said. He caused his spirit to dwell within us that we might now actually keep the law. That we might, and that includes turning our tongue away from evil and deceit, pursuing righteousness instead. You have to understand that because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is only there by the work of Christ on the cross, you can actually please God. In fact, that's the only way to please God is by having the Spirit dwelling within us. So the work that you do that actually pleases God is not a result of your own flesh. It's a result of the Spirit working in and through you. You tracking with me so far? So, because we can actually please God, the commands in this psalm can actually be followed by us. And therefore, the blessings can actually be had by us only as a result of the foundation of Christ and Christ alone. So you can't come into this psalm and read it like an instruction manual. Okay, here's what i got to do. First, you have to see, I'm completely bankrupt. I have no ability to obey this in and of myself. It is only on the foundation of Christ, who was truly the righteous one, who suffered on my behalf, that I can now be empowered by His Spirit to obey God and therefore receive the blessings that are mine only through Christ. You understand? That's how we read the psalm with gospel lenses on. But what kind of salvation should we expect? Because it calls into question my prosperity gospel preacher over here who's scoffing at what I just said. What, what kind of salvation should we expect? Is it the kind of salvation where everything goes great for us? He's already told us in this psalm the righteous will suffer. So it's clear that that's not what kind of salvation he's talking about. No, it's the kind of ultimate salvation that Jesus also experiences. It's an eternity with the Lord. It's a bodily resurrection like what Jesus experienced. We will then be rescued from all our troubles. Then death will be no more. On that day, death will be robbed of its victory. When all his are raised from the dead. So the psalm is true for us, but it's true on the foundation of Christ and Christ alone. It's not because of your righteousness, it's because of his righteousness. So now, with gospel lenses on, then go back to the beginning and read this psalm anew. I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. How? Well, this angel of the Lord came and encamped around those who fear him 
and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you sense that? Do you sense then that the Lord truly is good? Look at what He's done for me. I didn't deserve this. I'm a poor man. I'm a beggar. And yet, He delivered this poor man. I can think of no more fitting of a response to taste and see that the Lord is good than to partake of the Lord's Supper. But before we do, let me say one word to those who struggle mightily with their faith. Those who are frequently tempted to doubt the love that God has for them. And may even from time to time be tempted to not believe. That includes me. I'm certainly not immune from that. Walk through this psalm as I've walked through it today, do you see your sin? Do you see it? Do you see that you're a poor man or woman? Do you see the corruption, the fact that I am not this righteous person that's here? Do you believe what Paul has said already? There is none righteous, no, not one. What David has said in both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, that there is none righteous, no, not one. Do you see your sin? Do you believe that Jesus is the righteous one in this psalm? That He lived righteously, that He died, and that He rose from the dead? Do you see Jesus is the righteous one? Do you see the, the need to take refuge in Him? Do you see your need to take refuge in Christ? And what I mean by that is confessing that you're a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. Do you, do you believe in taking refuge in Him, meaning that salvation is by no other name than Jesus Christ? Do you, like David, recognize your own inability to save yourself? Are you seeing that in this psalm? Do you see your need to take refuge in Him? Does that make you see that the Lord is good? When you take account of all those things, do you stand back and you say, but why would He save me? He must be far more gracious and merciful than I ever could have imagined. Does it cause you not to take liberties with grace, but to fall back and say, woe is me. Are you like David here where he says, let the humble hear and be glad. Has it put you in a state of humility? And then does that give you a desire to live a life pleasing to the Lord? When David says, magnify the Lord with me, do you say, yes, I want to do that. In response to the salvation that He's given me in Christ, I want to do that. I can taste, I can see that the Lord is good. I want to magnify the Lord here with David and with all these people in this room. Does it cause you to go through that? 
then welcome to Jesus Christ. Any and all who are called by the name of Christ are in that position. There is no other position. That is the position of the Christian. So the question is not, what did you choose one day? What did you pray one day? What did you do one day? What water did you get in? It's none of that. When you taste, what do you see? That's the question.